I recently read an article by an evangelical pastor on the internet entitled, I'm not preaching resurrection this Easter. Uh, in it, he expresses his concern that, uh, given our current circumstances, uh, many preachers will be tempted uh, this weekend and today in particular to to use resurrection as a metaphor for survival, uh, to motivate people to see that uh, we will get through this coronavirus pandemic together and uh, just as Jesus rose from the dead, we will, we will come out the other side of this with new, new hope and new life. Now, I can understand his concern, and no doubt there will be many sermons this Sunday that would be just that, using Jesus' resurrection as a metaphor, as a really just a, a motivational tool uh, or a self-help um, metaphor for how we can get through tough times. But I think the article drew a false dichotomy, a false division between uh, Jesus' resurrection and our promised resurrection, because uh, the two are a package deal. One doesn't exist without the other. Jesus is only risen from the dead because he did so in fulfilment of all of the Old Testament promises about uh, the resurrection of the dead. And we can only be sure of our future resurrection because Jesus is raised from the dead. As we see in verse 20, Jesus is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the firstfruits are exactly what the name says. They are the first pickings, chronologically speaking, of a harvest, a harvest of fruit. For the Jews, the, the beginning of the harvest was around the same time as the Passover. And so the, uh, the festival celebrating the beginning of the harvest, called the Festival of Firstfruits, was celebrated... Uh, and it was always on the first day after the Passover Sabbath, the Sunday after the Sabbath during the Passover festival, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So we see that Jesus is the fulfilment of the Passover. He goes as the Passover lamb to the cross on the Friday during the Passover festival. His blood is poured out to redeem his people from death so that the angel of death might pass over God's people as they did in the exodus from Egypt. He then fulfills the festival of the first fruits as he rises from the dead. And we see in his resurrection a, a prototype, so to speak, of our own resurrection, a, a sign of what the harvest to come is going to be like in its, in its quantity and in its quality. Then, 50 days later, he fulfills the feast of Pentecost. Pentecost was a celebration of the, the completion, the fullness of the harvest being brought in. And so on the day of Pentecost, 
Jesus at the right hand of the Father pours out his Holy Spirit, who then empowers the disciples to go out like workers in the harvest field uh, to proclaim the gospel and to gather in God's elect from every nation. And that's the harvest uh, that we are a part of. We are the harvest that uh, that is being brought into uh, the storehouses, into the, the silos, into the kingdom of God. The next occurrence in the Jewish calendar, uh, a, a number of months, uh, many months after uh, these three festivals, was the festival of trumpets. It marked the beginning of the new year. And it was also a call to remember the fact that God is the judge before everyone whom everyone has to, to give an account. It's no coincidence that we read in verses 51 and 52 of 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, verses that we'll look at in the future. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Jesus appearing as judge of the whole earth, which will take place at the end of uh, history and at the same time as our resurrection from the dead, is the fulfilment of the festival of the trumpets. So calling Jesus in his resurrection the first fruits, what it means is that Jesus' resurrection sets the standard for all who are in him. Whatever happens to Christ also happens to those who are in Christ. Just as Adam set the standard for all who are in him, the first man brought death, the last man brought resurrection for those who are dead. Because we were all in Adam, we all died along with him. But now that we are in Christ, we live along with him. Now, it's important to clarify what's meant in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Taken on its own, it, it may sound as if this is saying that in the end, everyone will be saved. Uh, we know that every single person, without exception, is in Adam and therefore died in him. Does that then mean that every single person, without exception, will be made alive in Christ? Well, there's a sense in which the answer is yes. Every single person will be raised and will stand before Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead. As we saw last week in Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus confirmed this a number of times in his own teaching, uh, notably Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. All of humanity is divided into two groups, uh, one by one, with 
those who are blessed by my Father on his right and those who are cursed on his left. So the resurrection of Jesus secures the day of judgment as a certainty when uh, every single person will be raised from the dust and will stand before him. It's because uh, it is through his resurrection that the Father has appointed him to that position of highest authority. Paul said to the Athenians that the time of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. But while the the day of judgment and the resurrection of every human being on that day is, is in view here, the passage is focusing on what Jesus' resurrection means for those who are in him. Uh, being made alive here is not just a physical resuscitation. It's, it's life in its fullest sense. It's about life that is communion with the Father through the Son in the, the power and joy of the Holy Spirit. It's the eternal life that uh, Jesus describes as knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's life in which, in which we know the face of God turns towards us, the light of his presence filling us and giving us peace. It's life in which we know uh, his pleasure in us as his beloved sons and daughters. Now clearly from the teaching of scripture and from Jesus himself, we know that not everyone will know this fullness of life. There will be an ongoing existence for sure, but it will only be those who are in Christ for whom this existence will really be called life. What Paul is saying here is not that every person without exception will know this life in Christ, but that for all People without distinction, this is the only way that they may know true life. It makes no difference whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are young or old, male or female, a good citizen or a criminal, religious or non-religious. Apart from Christ, you are dead in Adam. And in him you remain under God's wrath. And the only way that you could ever be made alive again is if God takes you out from under his wrath, out of Adam, out of your sins and places you in Christ, into his righteousness, into his holiness, into his place of favour and acceptance with the Father. If by faith you know that this is what he has done for you, then you can be assured that the resurrection life of Christ is already at work in you. The Holy Spirit has been given to you and he has sealed you for that day so that your resurrection on that day won't be to everlasting shame and contempt, but will be to everlasting life in his presence. So, uh, to rephrase 
verse 22, we could say something like, uh, on that day, those who remain in Adam will remain in their state of death, while those who are in Christ will be brought into the fullness of the life that they have in him, a, a life that is eternal. This is 23 to 26. Uh, they're the basis for the, the very famous black spiritual when the saints go marching in. They paint a, a, a picture of a, a victory procession of the king's son, uh, the, the prince, the heir to the throne, to the throne as he uh, returns in victory from conquering his enemies and he's, he's entering into the city in triumphal procession. Uh, the son heads up this procession and following him is his victorious army. And as they uh, march through the streets, they're joined by all of the citizens who have been, been liberated from their enemies by this uh, conquering, victorious uh, prince of life. The son leads this procession right up to the palace of his father because it is on his father's behalf that he went out to win the battle. And before his father's throne, he publicly acknowledges that all he did was for his father's glory. And he calls on all of the citizens of the kingdom to, to bow the knee with him before the father's throne, to acknowledge him as the ruler over all. This scenario is actually played out in one of John's visions in the book of Revelation. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, there's the trumpet again, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, we give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 24 elders uh, who fall on their faces and worship God, they represent the people of God, the, the 12 tribes of Israel representing the Old Testament people and the 12 apostles representing the New Testament saints. Uh, we will be there before the Father's throne with Jesus at our head and we will worship him for the triumph of his mercy and grace and justice that he has accomplished through his son. See how verse 27 begins with a quotation. This is from Psalm 8. Uh, and Psalm 8 is a psalm about the majesty of humanity. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And here's the quote. You have put all things under his feet. See, God's plan in creation was to make humanity the rulers over everything that he had made, subject only to himself. But having become rebels and enemies, humanity, we in Adam, we forsook our claim to that privilege. Yet God's purpose still stood. He was determined to have us as vice-regents. So from before the foundation of the world, his, his plan had always been that the Son would come, would take on human flesh, and in doing so would, would establish such a bond, a bond between God and humanity that can and never will be broken. A bond that would guarantee this ultimate glory for humanity as rulers over all of creation. This glory wouldn't be on our own. This, this glory would come as we are united to the Son. So it would be through the reigning of the Son of God over creation that the reigning of humanity over creation would be secured because the Son, 100% divine and 100% human, would be ruling over all. This eternal plan obviously included the Son giving himself up in great love on behalf of these rebels and these enemies in order to reconcile them to himself. He entered not only our human experience but our human death. He united himself to us in every point of our humanity including our death so that we may be just as united with him in his resurrection. Just as united with him in his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. So when we see in verse 28 the Son being subjected to the Father, it's not, it's not diminishing his own status as God the Son. It's not a loss of his eternal authority or his equality with the Father in his divine nature. This is, this is the Son clothed in our humanity, our humanity that has been redeemed and, and glorified and putting us in himself back into our rightful place with all things in creation under our feet, but still under the sovereign, loving rule of God. Now, that all might sound very heavy and maybe too much to take in, but that's the thing, it is. The word for glory in Hebrew literally means weight. And so talking about glory is to talk about heavy things and really in this life we can we can only catch a glimpse of the fullness of glory we can only we can only bear the weight of a fraction of what god has in store for us the the, the weight of glory the father's preparing us for such glory that in this life with our dim spectacles on we can only comprehend 
a, a glimpse, a fraction of it. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that if we could actually see in a person the full glory that they're destined for in Christ, we'd be tempted to fall on our faces and worship them. All of that is what we mean when we say, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's not just that this one man, Christ, has been raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. His resurrection from the dead uh, secures all of that glory for us uh, who are in him. Now, back in verses 12 and uh, 12 to 19, we were told that essentially all of Christianity would be a farce if the dead are not raised and if Christ consequently was not raised. And here in these verses, uh, he gives two examples of how that would be true. One from the Corinthians' own practice and one from his own life. Now, exactly what uh, baptism on behalf of the dead looked like, or why some Christians at this time are practising it, uh, we can't actually say for sure. Uh, This is the only reference, uh, not only in the Bible, but in all literature um, from this period of time, that makes reference to this this, uh, strange practice. The most likely explanation for uh, what it is, is that uh, people had come to faith in Jesus, but they died before they had the chance to be baptised, whether that was because they were martyrs uh, because of their faith, or because they they got sick and died before they were able to be baptised, and uh, and the there was still a recognition given to them of their inclusion in the church by someone being symbolically baptised on their behalf. Well, whatever it was exactly, it was a practice that was based on the belief in the resurrection of the dead. Why would you bother doing anything on behalf of a dead person unless you believed it had some benefit beyond the grave. So the Corinthians were practising this rite, which was based on a doctrine that they were denying. Paul is saying, why do you even bother doing this um, if you say that there's no resurrection? Secondly, uh, Paul's ministry to them and his ministry to the wider church, which they clearly valued greatly because they'd, they'd written to Paul that asked him questions about these issues and and were uh, trusting in his apostolic authority to give them the answers. His ministry to them would be a waste of time. His ministry to any church would have been a waste of time. Why bother labouring tirelessly and selflessly and uh, putting himself in danger daily for the gospel if there's no resurrection? If, if the dead are not raised... Paul would be better off just looking after himself, just uh, eating and drinking for tomorrow we die, just living for the moment, rather than wasting his life for a goal that is empty and futile. Paul's goal was that he wanted to see the church uh, brought to maturity in Christ and that uh, 
on that day when Christ returns, he, uh, he often expresses the, the thought that he will stand before Christ and all around him will be uh, all of these people that he's brought the gospel to. And, and, and he says that they will be his glory and his joy on, on that day. But it's a waste of time if the dead are not raised and if Christ is not raised. Paul's final point in this section of our passage is a confronting one. And I, and I think it's designed for anyone who's read what he's said so far but is unable or unwilling to see his reasoning through all of this, the logic that uh, the resurrection of Christ, which secures our resurrection, is, is an essential part of the gospel. And without the resurrection, the gospel isn't a gospel at all. See, denying the resurrection isn't just a theological error. It's sin. To reject what is clearly taught in Scripture what God has said without question and without doubt is quite frankly disobedience against God such that uh, he says in verse 34 that those who deny the resurrection really have no knowledge of God they may claim to know God but you cannot know God except through the resurrection through the risen Christ in July 1984, the, the York Minster Cathedral in England was struck by lightning and devastated by a fire that was started by the lightning. Many people at the time saw it as an interesting coincidence that uh, this happened only three days after the consecration of a bishop who, among other things, denied the resurrection of Jesus. Now, whether, whether that was God's purpose in uh, that lightning strike, uh, we, we can't say for sure. One day we'll, we'll find out, I guess. But it stands nevertheless as a symbol for us that the truth of the resurrection is not only to be important for us. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead is important to and for God himself. It was his action to raise Jesus from the dead. It was his action, his, his explicit command to have the risen Jesus proclaimed as Lord to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's the resurrection of Jesus that, that seals all of his promises, that vindicates him as the judge of all the earth who will always do what is right. It's the resurrection that shows him to be uh, the one true God who deserves all honour and glory and praise from every creature on and below and above the earth. God has put his own glory at stake by making this event of the first Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, central to all that he's ever said and done and all that he ever will say and do. So as the church of God, we must never lose 
as one of our central foundational cries. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.